Rural America cannot be saved. American cities are leaving rural America behind. The graying of rural America. The hard truths of trying to save the rural economy. Rural America is dying. The negative narrative is so powerful. People will do whatever they can to prove it's true. Austin, with these distressing headlines dominating news about rural America, is this the narrative that you grew up with about the fate of your hometown? Well, I do remember growing up in West Kentucky in the 90s and hearing and noticing when small groceries or mom and pop businesses started to close down as big box stores moved in. And it did seem like a dire narrative. It kind of convinced some people we were headed for some state of rural despair. Hmm. So you must have felt a lot better once we found Ben Winchester and heard what he had to say about that. The story of rural is much more nuanced, much more diverse than ever before, and much more regional than ever before. Absolutely. So I'm a data guy. It was kind of a relief to hear this data guy call attention to the overlooked reality of what's actually going on here. But I do have to admit, I still have some questions about the big picture and maybe how the big picture might change post-coronavirus. Let's talk about it then. Let's look at the data. We can definitely get to those questions. I'm glad we found him to set the record straight. And to get our namesake. This is how we start to begin the conversation about living in the middle of everywhere. Today we'll have a different sort of episode where we'll hear from Professor Ben Winchester about what the real story is about rural America's prosperity. And the reason we decided to call our show Middle of Everywhere. Big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Ariel Avery. And I'm Austin Carter. There's this whole mythical narrative that exists about our rural communities that that I've really dedicated my life to dispelling. We spent some time talking with Winchester about where this mythical narrative about rural and small-town America comes from. There are a few different origins, but even more reasons for its persistence. Nostalgia. This was something I asked him about. Do Americans have an ideal about small-town America that makes it seem like something from a time gone past? So on one hand, your nostalgia can be like gun smoke. On the one hand, your nostalgia can be leave it to beaver. Or, you know, uh, the Andy Griffith show was my kids love. Barney! Barney! I like Ben's kids. I'm a dedicated Andy Griffith fan. <laughs> I mean, I think there is like this broad Norman Rockwellish kind of view of what rural could be and should be. You know, I think that was a blip. Well, things certainly don't look like that around here. I'd say it's more of a parks and recreation kind of situation. (laughs) Uh, Not so much a Schitt's Creek. (laughs) (laughs) But there were other histories playing into the perception of rural decline also, right? We have a narrative that's, you know, based on things that happened 120 years ago, where the mechanization of agriculture reduced the rural populations because, you know, your six kids in the family weren't all going to be able to find a job on the farm anymore. Essentially, as we saw the mechanization of agriculture take place, we started to see uh, the rise of regional centers across the rural landscape. We started to see a really uh, different rural kind of propel itself. 
all the way up through the 1950s, 1960s, where, you know, ag essentially came and went as a primary industry, manufacturing came and went as a primary industry. And really, the story of rural America since the 1970s is really rich and diverse with, uh, I would say, a lot of really great indicators happening right under the radar. Since 1970, the rural population has gone up by 11%, not gone down. Wow, I didn't know that the rural population has been on the rise since 1970, even having lived here my whole life. Yeah, me neither. But I'm still a bit wary of accepting this 11% increase as an outright positive sign of rural prosperity. I mean, when you look further at the numbers, the population of the rest of the U.S. has gone up by about 60%. So that's a pretty big disparity. Yeah, I see your doubt there. But I do think you have to understand how Ben looks at the data. In some of our rural communities, our populations are going down but the number of households stays the same. So what's happening there is that I call it total population infatuation, that we're very infatuated with how many people are in our town. But what happened to that household compared to like 1940? 1940, the average household size was 3.6. Now it's 2.6. So our population is going to go down in our rural communities without us doing anything <laughs> except mm. existing in the modern world. So this bit of information was so revealing of the way Ben analyzes the data. So this whole analysis was saying our households are just smaller now. Right. So areas that have the same number of households can often account for population declines because of this. Right. So we're going to lose 29% of our population because of demographic destiny. I just love the titles he comes up with for some of these phenomena. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he also talked about the pattern of urban growth infiltrating rural areas, right? Oh, yeah. And how did that affect the data? When you look at the pattern and growth of urban areas, urban areas have not grown taller. They've grown wider. And many of our small towns in our rural places have become so popular over the last 80 years, they become urbanized. The pattern of urban growth is a pattern of rural desire. The urban-rural relationship is a complicated and maybe kind of contentious one. I think a lot of times rural is painted by what's left over after you describe urbanity. Rural for many years is not defined by what it is, it's defined by what it's not. It's a residual category of what's left over after the urban, <laughs> urban descriptions kind of take hold. Okay, now we know that this rural decline we hear so much about really isn't the full story. So let's talk about how Ben got to be the expert cheerleader slash statistician that he is. I grew up in Winona, Minnesota, along the Mississippi River. I was a river boy and um, spent a lot of time uh, stomping around all over southeastern Minnesota growing up. I wanted to get out. I did start going to school at Winona State at the time, and then I, I ended up going to college at the University of Minnesota Morris campus. Out in the prairie of western Minnesota, it's in a town of about 5,000 people. And that was my first exposure to small town life. It was easy to get involved, you know, just really great people. Overall, a theme of service that people had. This theme of service comes up a lot for him now. My undergrad was in math and statistics. Oh, well, there's his data roots. <laughs> yeah, and while he's in college, he starts working for some groups proactive in small-town prosperity. And then he gets an offer from a professor. How would you like to be the first employee at the Center for Small Towns? This is a center that was developed at the University of Minnesota by using university resources to help small towns. 
So Ben starts doing this research for them. And I started to travel around the state and just kind of hear about what's going on. And this is where it began. This is the first time he starts hearing this negative rural narrative. Because I'm reading books about rural and articles, it's like, holy cow, rural areas are terrible. Why? Why are they so bad? But it didn't seem to mesh up with my day-to-day work traveling around town to town. Like, people were very positive, very optimistic, very hopeful. They, they love this life. How can the narrative be so bad, but life be so great? Ben was really bothered by this, right? Yeah. He wasn't sure what his role was if these places were just dying out. Am I only going to be around here to help our small towns die in a respectful way? Like, well, first we're going to shut down your grocery store, and then we're going to get rid of your gas station. This first exposure to the power of the negative narrative also came along with a huge disaster event that, oddly enough, helped shape Ben's fondness for small towns and propelled him toward his career. So this was... uh, a year that we had a lot of snowfall, April uh, of 1997, the Red River flood hit. So I was out of town and I got back to my friend's house and there were two messages on my friend's machine saying, hey Ben, this is Brian. There's a couple inches of you know, uh, uh, water in the basement, no big deal. I'm just hanging out. The next message was from about 45 minutes later. And it was, Ben, there's like five feet of water in your basement. I'm taking your cats to my house. You've got you've to call me. The flooded basement had fuel oil leaking in. And meanwhile, the sump pump is spitting out fuel oil water to my backyard. Just months before this, Ben had started a disaster team with the Red Cross and Morris. So he took himself and his cats to a local hotel and told his newly assembled Red Cross team, We've never done this before. I'm calling you all together. You're going to practice the paperwork. His new Red Cross team got a chance to practice disaster relief on him. Meanwhile, his local community in Morris gets together to save their neighbors. They start sandbagging and cleaning up the town. A bunch of people, friends and others, come into his house and help clean every inch of fuel oil off of his stuff. He really saw his local community come together in a profound way. Typically, you know, this is why rural communities tend to have higher levels of social capital is because they are very good at it. They're, you know, they're good at getting things done together. They're good at um, just making it work and making it happen. I remember that seeing this spirit of volunteerism in his neighbors helped cement his future goal of working as a crusader for small towns. You know, this was just my own personal struggle I had, which um, which ultimately, you know, within a short amount of time, reevaluated my future there. And it, it honestly did not take me too long to go from, I need to put my life back together to, I'm going to use this as an opportunity. Within a couple of weeks after I lost literally half my stuff and was starting to put my life back together a little bit, that I realized I didn't know enough. I just didn't know enough about the history of rural America and what I was talking about to really be good at this. So I went to graduate school. Post-flood, Ben starts down his new path in graduate school at the University of Missouri-Columbia and gets a master's in rural sociology. A little different scene for a data guy. (laughs) It was during this time that I really started getting my feet wet and just going headlong right into documenting this brain gain, documenting the growth in the nonprofit sectors, documenting the economic diversity. Documenting all of this influx of people and resources was game-changing for Ben. 
and it changed the terminology you used. And, and this was before I even had the term narrative. Like this was just rural at the time. Like how can we describe rural? And it wasn't until I started to really advance and collect data around what this new narrative would even look like. Using the term narrative totally changes the way we talk about the negative headlines and what people think of small town America. Narratives have traction. Like you can actually have competing narratives in one town. And a lot of times, you know, folks who've been there a long time, their narrative is right round, you know, the best days are behind us. I remember how life used to be. This is like a narrative coming out of nostalgia, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. It produces an expectation of how things could be and should be. It has changed, um, but change does not always mean negative for the people, especially for the people that are just moving in. So probably one of the most important things for small towns to realize is that there are a lot of newcomers in their communities. And these people are not coming in to retire. Rather, they're coming to expand their lives. We call this the brain gain trend of people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s moving into our rural communities. That's right, and there was a lot of data showing that many people who moved away from their hometowns for college came back to rural areas with their degrees, their money, and their families. Every day there are people moving to rural America, and they're not moving for pity. They're not moving to, you know, help out towns from 40 years ago. They're moving because they're seeing hope and opportunity in the middle of these regions. And these are not just prairie towns, they're not just recreational towns. These are all rural communities across the country. And townies may not be welcoming these newcomers the way they should be. We don't really know anything about these new people moving in. We don't know where to find them. We complain that they don't show up at our meetings when they're involved in their meetings, you know. And many times the negative narrative is very loud and holds leadership positions. So on one hand, we've got old guard folks who are like, you know what, those new people, they don't care about this town because they're not showing up at my meetings. And meanwhile, the newcomers in town were like, I came to one meeting and they said my idea was dumb and they told me to go home, <laughs> you know. I can't say this particular scenario happened to me, but it has taken a while for me to feel integrated into the community. Really? I hope you do now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to work on something like this podcast where I'm interviewing tons of people, meeting tons of people and not feel like part of the community. So this topic of local group meetings kind of gets us closer to the concept of the middle of everywhere. Now today, the biggest shift we've had civically has been a shift to regional groups with a very narrow focus. And they're not doing everything in the region, they're snowmobiling. So these newcomers are kind of redefining how groups serve local populations. These aren't groups that are trying to solve every need, but rather a focus need that a lot of people have or want across a whole region. Hence the everywhereness, as we might call it, of these groups. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, Ben hasn't always seen this new way of living in a region being embraced by the people who've been there forever. When there is somebody new in your town, if we don't find ways to actually support and realize the interests and the passions that people have, we end up with this kind of, these folks just need to learn how we do it around here attitude, which ultimately helps no one. There's one key thing small towns need to do to help keep these newcomers. Successfully integrate people into our groups. 
So basically we need to focus on integrating newcomers and stop all the self-deprecating talk. We regurgitate these negative narratives ourselves in our rural communities and at the same time completely shoot ourselves in the foot by doing so. When we return, we'll hear what living in the middle of everywhere means for people's lifestyles. And we'll get into some of the more difficult questions. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. We've heard a bit about what the middle of everywhere phrase refers to as far as geographical reach of regional groups, but what about how people are living in their small communities today? Right. That was kind of at the center of middle of everywhereness. There, there's this kind of idea that nobody, no town is a one-stop shop. So yeah, if this was 1880, you know, you probably didn't, you know, get out of your county much. But, you know, this isn't 1880. This is 2020. And people have highly mobile lives, especially in our rural communities where, you know, owning a car is part and parcel of living the rural life. So living in the middle of everywhere is living in a place where you probably don't work in the same place as you shop. And you probably end up somewhere totally different to do your recreation. When we start to look at the, the choices that people make in terms of where they place their home and where they choose to buy their home is in the middle of everywhere. It is in the middle of where they eat and shop and work and play. And another thing to think about as far as being able to live in this everywhereness is just that our local economies actually allow for this. Like there are all these different industries and shops that support a regional economy and also create a lot of diversity. Today, we're really blessed to have a diverse rural economy, too, because, you know, if this were 150 years ago and you have a downturn in the one industry that dominates your community, that's going to affect everybody. Today, we have a much more diverse economy than ever before, and this should be viewed as a good thing. For example, look at this radio station housed in a major university. Our very presence in Murray provides a whole different level of economic diversity in our local community. But I have to admit, I do miss having a natural food store within a 15-minute drive. We have nothing like that in Murray. I have to go all the way up to Paducah. Yeah, well, this kind of gets into some of the other pain points Ben has about how living in this everywhereness battles its own negative narrative. Because of the kind of parochialism, you know, you want to be a cheerleader for your own town. You'd be like, oh, you know what? Um, you know, Hancock is great. Starbucks has nothing going on. You, this is the place you want to be. Hancock and Starbuck are a couple of small Minnesota towns. And unless we start seriously considering how we complement each other, and when I say complement, I mean both like fit together. Like, how do our assets fit together with our neighbors? But I also mean compliment, like, say nice things about your neighbors. Because uh, why would people want to move to your town if all you're doing is bad-mouthing your neighbors? I have heard people around here talk about our neighboring towns like this. Except, Murray really is the best place to be around here. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of leads us to one of my favorite parts of the interview, when Ben described how he gets people to stop doing this. My last name is Winchester. 
So I say I give people ammo. I give people ammo to shoot down this negative narrative. He does really own that name, doesn't he? It's one of the real pleasures I have in my life is that I give people language. I give people tools. I give people data. I give people facts. All of the trends about rural communities since the year I was born, since 1970, have been upward. The rural population is growing. The rural economy has diversified. The number of nonprofits in our rural communities goes up at a large rate. So really, I mean, the story for me is diversity, demographically, socially, economically. I mean, we are in a better spot than we have ever been in many ways. As a small town resident, everything he's talked about is good news for me and for my family. And for our community. Yeah. And maybe all these newcomers we're supposedly going to see coming into small town America because of coronavirus will really feel this prosperity. Did you ever ask him about this potential mass migration people keep talking about? I did. But being a numbers guy, he was a bit reluctant to say anything definitive. There still is no firm data on that. Um, there, There is a lot of speculation. There are a lot of, you know, hey, we've got four you know, real estate agents that all say this is happening. But uh, from, from a research point of view, and I'm a researcher, I, I need some more solid data behind me before I make any grand proclamations around you know, how many people or, or where they're moving. Uh, we just know interest uh, is really through the roof. Interest is through the roof? Yes. This has been measured by a Harris poll that showed that since the pandemic, nearly 39% of Americans are considering moving from the city to a less populated area. And 43% of urbanites responded that they had already been browsing real estate options. Wow. That explains my difficulty finding many good listings around here lately. Yeah. Maybe you're already feeling it. He did comment on how quarantine has affected local rural economies. And in true Winchester fashion, had some really positive things to say. In, in a normal non-pandemic day, we'd be traveling out and about in fairly wide distances. But the pandemic has kind of lessened that. We've seen retail sales um, bump up in a variety uh, of reporting sources. Um, so I, I think we're just we're seeing a renewed focus on local foods, on local retail spaces, on local redevelopment of Main Street buildings to accommodate some of these trends. So uh, in many ways, this has been a, a really great things for small towns to look inward and see how can they better serve the people that they've got. So everything he's described in these interviews fits what I see around here a lot more accurately than the story of rural death and despair we've heard for years. But there's something we haven't talked about here that has come up quite a bit for us outside the studio. Yeah, what's that? Well, we've been talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and how we've seen it take hold in our town or in our region. And we've wondered about the police response in small communities. Mm-hmm, yeah. We've had a lot of discussion on that. So I wonder what Ben has to say about police relations in small towns and rural areas. You know, being such a cheerleader, I wonder if he has any data that shows that police have a more friendly relationship with their communities. You know, kind of fitting with the Andy Griffith picture we're all in love with. Well, he wasn't willing to say anything on record about this. And from what I've learned... I can't say that there's evidence that rural police departments are any more connected to their communities. In fact, there may be more evidence to the contrary, given that so many police are posted to various communities they don't even live in. 
You know, honestly, that's a little disappointing. I know Ben really wants to stay on the positive side of his messaging, but I was kind of hoping he would confirm my ideals about small town Mayberry life, where the sheriff is your friend and mentor, that that was somehow accurate. I'm sorry, Austin. But I think this harkens back yet again to what rural towns really are these days. They're just not Mayberry. But this question does remind me of a Pew Research article that came out, Why Rural America is Joining the Movement for Black Lives. In this article, they discuss the way residents of rural areas are responding to the Black Lives Matter movement, in that they are protesting the same brutality that urban areas feel, but that it's on a much more personal level. And this can actually be a leveler. What do you mean? Well, Ben talked about this a bit. Small communities have to deal with each other on a level that doesn't necessarily happen in urban communities. In many ways, for me, it is uh, small towns are these a great leveler. When you know each other, you've got to find ways to get past some of these divisions that may be very prominent nationally uh, to be able to have conversations about how to improve your community or build that you know, church or whatever it is uh, that needs to be done. And again, in true Winchester fashion, he wanted to talk about the positive values that people in rural communities often share, whether they've been around forever or they just arrived. I would rather talk about all the values that these newcomers have that may be similar around environmental stewardship or recreational opportunity or wanting to take care of your family. <laughs> I think there are a lot more similar values than different values in many ways. Um, and even, I mean, we're getting to a, a differentiation in value systems even has become political. Uh, but we do know from the research we did at the University of Minnesota that, you know, 68% of workforce movers said they moved to live among people with similar values. And that doesn't always mean conservative values. And I know around where I live, I don't always share the same political views as my neighbors, but we do share similar values about space and recreation. You know, Ariel, I'm glad that we got you here as one of these small-town newcomers. Well, thanks, Austin. I have been a bit surprised to find out how much I actually have in common with people who grew up around here, just like Ben said. And I'm glad I remember to ask permission to use the phrase. I do want to get your formal blessing to use this phrase that you've been using so long as our title for our podcast. Yeah, no, that's great. Go ahead and use it. Middle of everywhere, man saves the day. <laughs> Visit us at middleofeverywherepod.org. And while you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about exciting updates and new episodes. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Lavery, with editorial help from my co-host, Austin Carter. Our editor is Naomi Starobin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Thank you to our intern, Serenity Rogers. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Middle of Everywhere Pod. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.